Have you considered how your company's digital transformation plans might also increase its cyber risk? If not, you might want to join the Security Ledger and RSA Security on May 9th at 11 a.m. for Taking On Digital Transformation. In this webinar, I'll talk with RSA portfolio strategist Steve Schlarman about how IT leaders and executives at cutting-edge firms are addressing digital risk management as part of their overall digital transformation strategies. To learn more or register Point your browser to securityledger.com slash risk. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast episode number 143, as more and more applications and workloads shift to the cloud, securing high-performance Linux environments has become a priority. In our second segment this week, we're going to be speaking with Kelly Shortridge with the firm Capsulate, which is offering attack protection for production Linux environments. But first, a massive IPO of the ride-hailing firm Lyft on March 28th got loads of media attention as the first gig economy IPO, but that company's rapidly slumping stock price has thrown cold water on early investors and the prospects for other gig economy offerings like Lyft competitor Uber. But what about that other big trend in IPOs? Let's call it the cyber economy. Indeed, as information security continues to be a top-of-mind issue across industries, more and more cybersecurity firms are finding their way to the public markets. The latest example came just days after Lyft's IPO. It was Tufin, a 15-year-old Israeli firm that began life as a tool for managing firewall rules, but has rapidly evolved into a powerful security automation platform. In our first segment, In this week's podcast, we're speaking with Ruvi Kitav, the CEO and co-founder of Tufin, about his company's journey from a bootstrapped cybersecurity startup to a publicly traded company. Ruby says that Tufin's journey hasn't always been easy and included a round of layoffs in 2015. In this conversation, Ruby and I talk about Tufin's big breakthrough, realizing that it wasn't just selling security, but IT automation. It's a fascinating discussion. To start off, I asked Ruby about Tufin's journey and what it was like to ring the bell on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, so I'm Ruby Kitab, CEO and co-founder of Tufin. Ruby, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you. And uh, a big week uh, because this week, uh, Tufin went public on the New York Stock Exchange. You were there. You um, rang the bell, brought the hammer down, the whole bit. Just tell us a little bit about that journey. You know, it, it's kind of a surreal experience to be up there and, and ring the bell and have our employees cheering. And, uh, you know, so... You know, kind of had to pinch myself to believe that it's happening. Uh, but uh, yeah, it happened. And, you know, it's been 15 years in the making since we started. Uh, but um, I was very, very happy to get to this point. And on the other hand, you know, it's uh, it's just a point in time. And now we need to continue the growth and uh, deliver. For folks who aren't familiar with Tufin, Talk a little bit about the origins of the company. I know you were a Checkpoint employee going way back. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of uh, connections between Checkpoint and Tufin just in the in the marketplace. Sure. So I started working at Checkpoint back in 1998. So I was a developer at Checkpoint um, and met up with Ruben Harrison, my partner and Tufin CTO. And a few years later, we, you know, we both decided to leave and open our own business. Um, so initially, we 
we were bootstrapping. We did not have the idea for the product um, in the beginning. We were doing some consulting on security and and development, and, and then we got the idea for the first product, Secure Track, um, and you know pretty quickly uh, assembled the team and wrote kind of the first version of that product, which we were able to sell within about six months, and that kind of you know propelled us forward. So we we sold it and. Uh, we're able to hire a couple more developers and kept growing from there. Um, and we took funding first time only four years after we started. So end of 2007. Wow. Um, so the first few years, um, we bootstrapped completely. And then later on, um, you know, with funding, we were able to expand a little bit more rapidly. Um, and, you know, fast forward to today, you know, we haven't taken a lot of cash. We only raised about $28 million dollars. Historically, the last round was about five years ago, and we've been cash positive since then. Talk about what the value proposition was uh, initially back in those early days, uh, bootstrapping. Uh, and and I think I remember talking to you guys pretty early on when I was at 451 Group. My recollection is it was a lot about firewall management, and rule management, and kind of making sense of this tangle of you know policies that folks were dealing with at that point. Yeah. So initially, it was um, you know it was you can think of it as a reporting product. Initially, we were connecting to the firewall and analyzing changes that people made and reporting on the changes. And a little bit later, we added a policy component. So you could define a policy of, you know, on the network, what should be connected to what and what should not be connected to what. So think of it as zone to zone segmentation policy, you know, kind of a policy layer above all the infrastructure, but it was only reporting on changes after the fact. So this is Secure track the initial version. Later on, we added uh, rule usage analysis, so the ability to collect log data and identify rules and objects that have not been used for a long time, which might be candidates for removal. And you know that sold well, um, and you know kind of propelled us forward. That that was the first first phase of the company's growth. And then we introduced secure change, so that was um, you know very innovative at the time. But that was risk based workflow is what we called it. So it's essentially taking that policy element and running an analysis on a, on a proposed change before you implement the change. So the idea for secure change conceptually was integrating with ticketing systems like ServiceNow. I think ServiceNow maybe didn't even exist back then. It was probably Remedy was the first integration we did. And then mm-hmm. a, a, a user mm-hmm. would open, user being usually a web developer, app developer, wants to open a connection from point A to point B for their app. So they open a ticket, it gets into secure change, and then we would automatically be able to tell you whether it violated the policy or not. So the idea was to reduce the number of errors that actually get to production. And that was, you know, that was innovative. It had good reception in the market. And then we we had Secure App as the third product. And Secure App was about application connectivity. And essentially it was around reducing the friction between app teams and network teams. A lot of times, network engineers don't know what the app guys are trying to do, and app teams don't understand networking at all. And so there's there's a lot of miscommunication and redos and mistakes. Um, so Secure App was aimed at that. And then an interesting thing happened. We had the first customer that bought all three products together was the SIX group, SIX group, and uh, they're the Swiss Stock Exchange. They told us, look, for us, making a change on the network takes about a week and we have a team of outsource engineers that implement this change. And we 
rolled out the entire suite, Secure Track, Secure Chain, Secure App, we're able to model the changes with the policy-based workflow, and now we can implement a change in one day instead of a week. We don't no longer need this team uh, externally that's making the changes, so it's five times faster, more accurate, and more secure. So we're able to save money uh, in time and improve the security. And I think that was the pivotal moment for us because we suddenly realized that we're not just a security product, but this can be used for automation, which has a completely different value proposition. So suddenly the value proposition, you know, it, it shifted into, hey, we can automate a business process, which happens to be the network change process. Um, and then the next phase was we, we started thinking after that moment, how far will this get? Like, where will, where will customers want to be in five or 10 years? And we realized that it's going to be zero touch automation. People would want, we want to request a change and for the network to just reconfigure itself, you know, somehow in the background without the user actually do, needed to do anything and do it automatically without wasting a network engineer's time if it can be automated. So then we started investing in automation, looking at network topology, understanding all the complexity of network topology. So, mm -hmm. you know, NAT, MPLS, VPN, all sorts of routing technologies on all the different vendors. So Cisco, and then later on, Checkpoint, Palo Alto, Fortinet, Juniper. So, so how to model a change. So the, the concept today is you open a ticket on ServiceNow. It gets injected into Tufin. First thing we do is we perform automated risk analysis. So is it compliant with the policy or not? And if it is, then we perform automated network change design. So we use the topology model to actually create a network connection path analysis. So what are all the firewalls, routers, switches, and cloud platforms that this connection is going to traverse? And then we design the perfect minimal change on every one of them. What's the minimal rule change, maybe it's just add an IP to an object, or here I don't need to do anything because you know this firewall already allows it. And on VMRNSX, maybe I need to touch it this way. So network change design. And then the last mile was automated provisioning, pushing a change out automatically to all those platforms to be able to implement a change in minutes instead of days. We went through several phases where it started as a reporting product, then later on, we did risk-based workflow. Then we realized, hey, this can be this can be a key to automating the network change process. Let's try to automate it all the way. And as you look at it today, Ruvi, who are Tufin's customers? And generally, these days, what's bringing them to your doorstep? So, you know, we, we have over 2,000 customers uh, that have chosen Tufin since inception. Uh, it's really uh, customers of all sizes. Obviously, the larger you are, the more complex is your network, the more you're going to have a pain point. So if you if you have about, let's say, 10 firewalls, you're probably not a typical Tufin customer unless you have stringent um, you know, compliance or security requirements. Because usually, like let's say you're 10 firewalls or less, you won't have the need to automate. But if you're bigger, especially if you get into dozens of firewalls, and if you have a fragmented environment or, or a hybrid environment, if you have firewalls and private cloud, VMware NSX and Cisco ACI, and you're moving to the public cloud. So all of those things add to the complexity. The more complex you are, the more you're going to need Tufin. So big verticals for us are finance and telco, but it's really across the board. Any large 
organization, everybody in the Fortune 1000 is a relevant customer. Uh, we have a lot of those. So essentially, what brings them to our doorstep is, you know, first, you know, we, we try to find them as well, but it's, it's customers whose network is so complex that they have kind of a mess on their hand. They, they don't have good visibility into the impact of the changes. And every change takes several days to implement. And they want to improve it by, you know, defining the policy well for the first time. You might be shocked, but a lot of Fortune 1000 organizations don't have a well-defined, formalized segmentation policy. They're, you know, the security architecture might have been written like five years ago. It's a PDF or a Word file collecting dust. And every mm -hmm. day, network engineers are making changes based on their <laughs> gut feeling instead mm -hmm. of a formal policy. So. We help them define that policy and then automate the change process around that policy. You brought this up yourself, but these days, as you said, so many companies, uh, particularly in that Fortune 1000, are obviously managing legacy network infrastructure, but also almost certainly relying on private clouds and increasingly on public clouds. Um, how does a, a product like Two Fins work across those three domains? Um, and, and what are the challenges there from a kind of security and policy compliance standpoint? So it's, it's, it's super interesting. And, and we're actually, I think, in, in, a, in, in this moment where, you know, everything is being transformed. So organizations that had a very large and complex network to begin with, so large and complex, I'm talking about dozens or hundreds of firewalls, thousands of routers and switches. With the threat landscape today and the data center, they want to do, you know, private cloud SDN. So rolling out Cisco ACI and VMware NSX and actually using them for segmentation in the data center. So that's a new thing that is picking up a lot and people want to manage that. So VMware NSX and Cisco ACI have a distributed firewall within that data center. That needs to be managed as well. So we hook up into those APIs and we know how to read them. We know how to manage them. We know how to look at the topology of that private cloud. Fortune 1000 still, I would say it's, it's early days. I don't think uh, a lot of Fortune 1000s are putting their mission critical data up on the public cloud yet, but they're preparing for it, right? I think you know they don't have as much control as they would like to have over the public cloud but they're gearing up towards the public cloud. So some of them are, you know, they have all sorts of applications that are might might not be mission critical, but make sense to be in the cloud. So they're dabbling with that, they're dabbling with containers. From our perspective, the way to think about it is that all of those technologies have a network. You have all these ingress and egress points in, you know, a hacker that comes in, let's say in, in an instance in AWS, if they can traverse the organization, get back into the data center through a VPN connection, you know, you have new ways to exploit the network. So, so it's part of your overarching network and you've got to secure it too. And from our perspective, you need a policy that will be not just for the firewalls, but it'll be across the organization. So some of the challenges there are that, you know, in the cloud, not everything is network oriented. You know, instances in AWS and Azure might come up and down with different IPs. It might not be IP-based. A lot of the policies that we're seeing in the cloud, in security groups, the cloud-native tools, they're actually tag-based. It might be, the you know, the zone-to-zone -zone segmentation might be all of the compute instances that have a tag 
engineering should not connect to the compute instances in the S3 buckets with tag operations. So it's logical and not necessarily IP and port based. So the policies need to be adjusted and you need different policies for the cloud and for the on-prem. And you need tools that will support all these types of infrastructure. We hear a lot about, you know, um, organizations moving to microservices or software-defined networking, um, those things that um, fit in, slot in right now to to your platform and the work that you do, um, or are those on the roadmap? So they're all, they all fit in. They fill in, fit into slightly different tools. So there's essentially two modes of operation. This is the way we think about the world. One is enterprise IT. It's organizations that use the public cloud as an extension of their you know, on-prem data center. So the, their AWS environment, for example, would just be a data center that happens to be in AWS, but they want to retain full control. So what does that mean? It means app developers that want access east-west inside that cloud environment will open a ticket. That ticket will go to network security or security engineering, whatever you call that team. And that team will evaluate that request and decide whether to allow it or not in the cloud. So that is fully supported in Tupin Orchestration Suite, Secure Track, Secure Chain, Secure App. The other scenario, which we're seeing more and more, is cloud native. And cloud native is where Mm -hmm. the developers and DevOps have been given the keys to the kingdom. Their admins on AWS, Azure, and Kubernetes, they don't ask for permission to reconfigure cloud connectivity. For example, on AWS, they'll use something like CloudFormation templates. They're not going to open a ticket. They will check in CloudFormation template and rebuild their app. And voila, you have a change in the security groups. And suddenly you have different connectivity in the cloud with zero visibility from the security team. So that's a huge challenge because a lot of DevOps organizations in agile methodologies, if it's cloud native, a lot of times they don't invite security to the table. And what you end up having is this challenge where security executives are saying, I'm hands off on this DevOps group. You know, they're not using my system. They're not using my process. If they get hacked, it's not on my shift. It's their problem. Right. So the challenge there was how to enable security policy control and enable the security teams to define the policy and have the DevOps group use those tools without slowing them down, which is a big challenge. Because if they open a ticket and, you you know, you put a firewall in there like a Palo or Checkpoint firewall in the cloud, and you involve network engineering, that slows things down naturally. It might take minutes, it might take hours for every change to occur. DevOps guys don't want to wait. Mm-hmm. And the idea here is that as developers, in a cloud-native world where developers are the kings and they make the changes themselves, as they're rebuilding their app, they're checking in code and config files that will rewire the cloud, we get a trigger and you know, to Iris or Orca, depending on if you're running in containers or not, and then we scan and, and look at the changes that were made. And if you violate the policy, the developer gets a, an alert triggered and security gets an alert triggered. And the developer themselves, they need to go back and fix it because they're the admins, right? But mm-hmm. at least they know that they broke something in the policy and the security folks know as well. And the idea here is to integrate it into the DevOps pipeline um, in a way that is not you know, it doesn't stop them, doesn't slow them down, 
It is exactly the way they work anyway, but for the first time, security managers have visibility into what these guys are doing in those DevOps groups. I mean, it's really interesting as you talk about the evolution of Tufin, it's really one of kind of increasing automation in some ways, right? You start as sort of a reporting tool and then you're moving more towards automation and orchestration. I guess looking ahead, you know, five or six years, um, where do you where do you see things leading? How much of the types of processes we're talking about now are, are fully automated? And as a company like Tufin, how do you figure out how to balance the need for having a human in the loop with the obviously desirable need to, you know, just automate as much as you can? So I think it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting question and, and need to think about it maybe um, conceptually and step back for a moment. Um, first, you know, sometimes the re- resistance, you know, network security engineers, um, li- like any human, <laughs> have, have a tendency to fear automation. You know, maybe I'll be automated out of a job. And that, we never see that happen, by the way. It's the 2001 uh, syndrome. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. I don't, I, I don't know the stat. You probably know better than I do. But there's, I don't know, there's like a million, jo- you know, missing people. And there, there's such a shortage of skilled manpower. I think it's like, you know, it's like 3 million globally and, you know, 800,000 in the United States or something like that. Yeah. Huge numbers. And in reality, what's happening is that these network security engineers that are making the change on the firewalls or or in the cloud, they are, you know, they're very highly skilled. And what they're doing is typing IP addresses into a console all day instead of hunting for advanced persistent threats, sitting in the, like, instead of doing real security, they're just implementing changes that the business is asking them to implement. So the idea here is to automate whatever you can automate. And so the question is, how automated can it get? I think, you know, my view is that network security engineers should be looking at active threats that are happening right now. They should be looking for that rogue, uh, malicious, you know, user or um, that hacker that is traversing the network or all sorts of suspicious activity. That is real security. And the other piece is define the policy and let the tools automate it, right? And and every once in a while, you know, we have that with Tufin as well. Even when we get to zero-touch automation, there has to be an escalation process because sometimes a developer that wants to open a connection, um, you know, tries to open it, you know, opens a request and gets automatically rejected because whatever they wanted to do is non-compliant. And that's normal. And, you know, sometimes they would say, but I want it, right? So, you know, how, how do I escalate this? And then you need the engineers to go back and look at, oh, I have an escalation. This this person is asking for an exception. Okay, now I'll actually take a look at it and we'll see. Hopefully these exception requests are 5 or 10% of the requests and not, you know, 50 or 60%. So that's, I think, a piece on like how far this automation can get. So we want to take it as far as it can get, right? I think, uh, you know, autom- autonomous vehicles, as maybe as an analogy, like, you know, the car will take you wherever you want and you don't have to worry about it. A developer that wants to open a connection from point A to point B should not have to worry about it. The network should reconfigure itself on the back end if it's compliant with the policy. No human should be involved. The human should be involved in defining the policy to begin with. or exception handling, and that's it, full stop. And But to get there, that's going to take years of work, right? Because it's easy to say, kind of like hand-waving, the network is so complex, 
there are so many things to do. The vendors are changing their interfaces every three years, coming up with new products. So, you know, it's, it's never going to actually be 100% automated, but it can get pretty close to it. And now that you're public, how are you going to use the, the money from your IPO? How does, uh, how does Tufin grow? So on the IPO, I think, you know, every entrepreneur probably deep in their heart wants to see their idea flourish and get big. And same for us. Initially, you know, we didn't think it would be this big when we started, obviously. I think very few people have like a vision and say day one, it's going to be a, uh, like a, a big company. But we pivoted along the way. And I think once we understood that, hey, we can do zero touch automation on the network, I think we realized we're onto something bigger. We were never determined, okay, no, it's IPO or nothing, but we always wanted to to see it through. And now that you know we're, we're on this cusp of this really big market opportunity, at least that's what we feel. Um, you know, I, I'm really curious to see how big it can get, and I think get pretty big. So, although it's been 15 years in the making, I'm super energized about it because it's like. There was Tufin 1.0 and then Tufin 2.0 and then Tufin 3.0. You know, every couple of years we we do something new and and you know we move to uh, bigger and better things. So so lots of interesting things ahead of us, and I'm not bored at all, and happy to be doing it. I think that's called seeing opportunities and taking them, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And we're fortunate to have uh, you know survived you know tough times, and and we've had them. We we took the opportunities when we got them, and um, you know we're lucky to be here. Um, so that's the, the first question. And on the second question, what we're going to do with the funding, you know, we're, we're going to expand, obviously, um, going after the market opportunities. So some of that will be sales and marketing. Um, a lot will go into R&D, uh, developing our existing products, developing new products, extending the lead we have in automation, um, lots of things to do. Looking back, Ruvi, what, what was the hardest time for you, do you think? What was the sort of white knuckle moment? Uh, there, there were a few moments, you know, back in 2015, uh, those of you that were too thin and maybe our competitors, you know, we were about, uh, 270 employees and then we needed to cut back and, uh, we had to let go 40 people. And that mm. was the first time ever that we, that we needed to do it. And the only time, but that was very, very difficult. I mean, to, yeah. to, to part with very dedicated employees that, that were part of the two family, that was a hard moment, but in many ways it kind of galvanized the company after that, um, we survived it and we actually came out stronger. Uh, but you know, that's a tough moment. And, and a lot of companies go through something like that at some point in their lives and, uh, it, it changes you. Ruvi Kitov, CEO and co-founder of Tufin. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger podcast. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Ruvi Kitov is the CEO and co-founder at Tufin. Up next, the growing reliance on private and public clouds has raised the profile of the open-source Linux operating system. It's not a stretch to say that many of the applications we all rely on day in and day out are running on top of physical or virtual Linux appliances and containers. As more enterprise applications migrate to the cloud, managing and securing Linux at scale has become an urgent problem. Alas, when it comes to cybersecurity, Linux is still an afterthought. Most malicious software, after all, is designed to run on and target the Microsoft Windows operating system, and Linux has mostly been an afterthought both for malware authors and anti-malware software firms. 
a growing list of companies has noticed the gap between legacy security tools and the needs of modern firms. One is Capsulate, which provides real-time attack protection for Linux production environments. In this, our second segment, we're joined by Kelly Shortridge of Capsulate. She's their VP of Product Strategy. In this conversation, Kelly and I talk about the growing demand for security for production Linux environments and how the shift to cloud is changing the calculus for doing security at scale. Kelly Shortridge, VP of Product Strategy at Capsulate. So at Capsulate, we're doing attack detection and prevention, specifically in Linux production systems. So the key there is you want to make sure that you're not somehow disrupting production or making operations sad. And we make sure to do both detection and being able to automatically respond to and stop attacks in a way that still is highly performant. Linux is, is definitely growing. It may not be on the desktop yet, but it's certainly growing in an enterprise context. And the problem is to date, there are some things kind of embedded within Linux that can help, particularly on the auditing and monitoring side, but there's a lot less that's kind of intelligently looking at attacks specifically. And the problem again with production systems is you don't want to kind of overload the CPU. You don't want to flood the network. And most traditional kind of detection and response tools tend to do that. Their model is collect all the things rather than collect the right things. So if you want something that's highly performant and detecting uh, detecting attacks within Linux specifically, then you really need to be pinpointing what are the right things that we need to catch um, that really pinpoint, hey, there's an active attack happening. What types of problems are we talking about? What types of issues uh, does Capsulate's technology detect? Yeah, so we can detect basically the entire range of uh, potential exploitation, whether it's local remote kernel exploitation. Um, obviously, for Linux production systems, the, the biggest worry from the business standpoint is any sort of disruption. So, for example, if someone is using it for uh, mining cryptocurrency, that's obviously going to spike the CPU. That's something that you don't want to happen. And that's not necessarily something that's traditionally thought of in a lot of security tools because it has had that malware focus. So it's pretty much the gamut of unwanted activity. I mean, it's even like if a developer is doing something that frankly is nefarious, even if it's not trying to compromise the company, it's something that could really jeopardize production. Um, we're able to see that as well. And uh, who uses this, Kelly? Who are Capsulate's customers? Our customers are those you might suspect who have the highest uh, need as far as production systems. So if you think about technology companies, also financial services, anyone who's running some sort of web-based service, which frankly is a lot of companies, uh, definitely has the need it's here. It's pretty much everybody. <laughs> yeah, these days it is for sure. You know, one of the challenges is sort of the headcount or the finding the finding, you know, the professionals to use the tools that you're going to buy for them. I know the part of your offering is kind of a, not a managed services offering, but you, you have sort of security talent on staff in terms of identifying threats and, and kind of passing that information off to, on to customers um, in ways that they can they can do something with it. But um, what does Capsulate do on the back end in terms of like threat identification? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's a good question. And the way that we're doing it specifically is, again, looking at what are the kind of behaviors attackers have to do when they conduct an attack. So the way I like to analogize it is if you are trying to detect if someone's breaking into your home, you would probably place you know some sort of sensor like at the window, maybe at the door, and you could tell, OK, normally the window only opens when someone has entered the front door. This time the front door hasn't opened, but the window's opened. Maybe something's wrong there, right? 
I think a lot of traditional technologies are looking at, you know, are the bricks moving? Like, is the glass, you know, suddenly changing pressure? It's all these little details that don't necessarily hit to what exactly mm. the attacker is doing as part of an attack. And so we're really specifically looking for those sorts of actions, which means we're drastically cutting down the level of signal that people have to deal with. So when we alert on something, it's actually real. We provide the full like process lineage. We provide all the information people need to be able to quickly determine like, okay, yeah, this, this looks pretty bad. This is on one of our systems I know we care about versus, you know, just a, a wall of spam that normally people have to sift through. So folks have all these technologies that they've bought. I guess how, what are you, what's your advice for figuring out what you need and what you don't need? Um, is it kind of like the uh, fashion advice, you know, if you haven't, haven't worn it in three months or, you know, get rid of it? <laughs> or is there any rule of thumb you can use to figure out, okay, which of these tools is actually, you know, um, relevant and tactical for me and which of them can, or as you, uh, you know, kind of shelfware and, and maybe we can just discontinue them. As someone with a capsule wardrobe, I definitely like the fashion analogy. I do think there's a huge <laughs> shelfware problem, which is exacerbated by, you know, teams rolling over frequently and people lose sight of, you know, the original purpose of the tool and the use case. And I think that's part of the bigger problem is a lot of security teams don't actually define KPIs or kind of the, the key goal for the product, which means it's very hard to evaluate whether or not it's working. The other things is if security teams are even trying to measure the return on the investment for the tool, which I would say most aren't. Uh, they're focused mostly on the stopping attacks or, you know, what was the cost if they can figure it out of the potential breach that resulted, you know, that would have resulted if this tool didn't catch it. But I think they're focusing less on some of the additional costs that arise, whether it's tuning the system, maintaining it, you know, in the case of application security, yeah, it's great if fewer bugs go into production and that's the metric you're watching, but is it decreasing engineer velocity? I would argue that a valuable tool is one that maybe keeps the same level of risk reduction the same as the existing application security tool, but it significantly reduces the time the engineering team or even the security team has to actually spend working with the tool. I think the the main thing when looking at you know the shelfware problem and trying to evaluate the huge RSA vendor hall is really digging into what are the the problems that users are really facing today, not just the buyers who are the CISOs, but the actual users. And I think there's a big misunderstanding about what tools are being used in everyday workflows. For example, with SecOps people, like I said, they don't want to have to look at another pane of glass. For people more on the risk management side, a lot of their work is consolidating risk-related data into some sort of master Excel spreadsheets. So a lot of the pretty reports and other visualizations and everything else people provide isn't actually that yeah. helpful. Um, and I sometimes joke that a lot of security innovation could happen actually just by examining where different members of the team have to go into Excel or create their own scripts to do the work they need to do. The problem is vendors focus less on that. And frankly, the buyers focus less on that because they don't have to deal with it every day. So you see uh, more tools trying to solve the problems at the top of the hierarchy of needs, which is less useful until you're actually able to reduce the amount of time spent on basic needs. You can't actually move up to that chain until all of the kind of, you know, Excel hacking and script creation and really manual tedious tasks are solved in a much more efficient way. To start at that basic level of, of in some ways, you know, what is our mission here? What are we trying to do? And that's a complex conversation to have, obviously. It gets more complex with the size and complexity of the organization. Yeah, it's not something you hear very much in security training. You know, ROI is considered a financial concept. It obviously applies to a bunch of different domains and contexts, but 
it's rare even for security teams to be thinking about security in terms of the business and certainly in financial or monetary terms. So I think that's that's part of it as well. A lot of teams and security leaders just don't have the tools um, or the skills needed to frame the conversation in the right way. We're seeing a lot of uh, very disruptive attacks. I know uh, we had the uh, Norsk Hydro attack uh, recently targeting a uh, major aluminum manufacturer. What are you hearing from your uh, the CXOs that you deal with at Capsulate? What's, what's top of mind for them? What are their big concerns security-wise? Yeah, a lot of it, as I mentioned, is just making sure that there even aren't stupid mistakes that lead to disruption or outages in production. I think there is an overemphasis on, you know, the the super devastating attacks, whereas kind of the daily ones, like I mentioned, there's crypto mining. Um, obviously, there's there's any sort of um, exploitation where people are trying to grab credentials. I think a lot of it is the attacks we've kind of seen before. I actually think that the you know ever changing threat landscape and the constant pace of you know attacker change is a bit of a meme, um, and I think it it is certainly a valuable marketing tool for vendors, and it certainly allows um, security practitioners who constantly feel behind to justify why they feel behind. But if you look back 20 years, kind of the the range of threats at a high level about which we're still worried today haven't changed all that much. Um, So I think as much as it's really fun to hear about new and novel and sexy attacks, people are still worried kind of about the basics. I mean, even one of the things that we provide is you know, compliance functionality like file integrity monitoring. And that's something that actually excites customers. So it's not always the, you know, super sexy, you know, Mossad is using, you know, a chain of O'Day to hack into your production systems that is the most valuable. It's making sure that, you know, you're catching what you need to catch and nothing is going to happen to these super valuable systems. Kelly Shortridge of uh, Capsule 8, uh, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks so much for having me again. Kelly Shortridge is the Vice President of Product Strategy at the firm Capsulate. 